Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, you've stumbled upon our last sermon in a series entitled Awesome God, where we've been examining the awesomeness of God uh, through various encounters that men and women have had with God. Um, there are specific names for God in each encounter that kind of captures what God has revealed about himself through those encounters. And so in our very first um, sermon of the month of January, we talked about El Shaddai, God Almighty. Uh, we talked about Jehovah, I am, the self-existent one. Jehovah Shalom, right, the Lord of peace. And last week, our brother uh, Troy Savage delivered a message on Emmanuel, God with us. Today, we'll be looking at the name El Roy, the God who sees me, uh, a name that may be less known because it's only found once in the entire Bible. And it's actually, it comes from a very unusual sort, source, um, a maidservant, right? A maidservant Egyptian girl named Hagar. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to actually read um, through verses 1 through 13. Give me a second. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had bore him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and had her husband and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with her and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that the servant's in you, now that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord God judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring, and it was the spring that is beside the road to Shar. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she said. Then the angel of the Lord told her to go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Then the angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now with child and you will have a son and you shall name him Ishmael because the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hands will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's great. Dear Lord, we, we pray that you would speak to us through this message. We pray that you would speak to us through this passage. Um, again, speak through me uh, with clarity, with precision. Um, and again, I promise to give you all the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So a, a little bit of context of what we we're talking about today. Moses is traditionally considered the author of Genesis, right? Which translates to the beginning, right? Moses wrote Genesis sometimes during the Israelites' exodus from Egypt or the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, right? Genesis would have been of a great encouragement uh, to Israel uh, because Genesis begins 
with God's people, namely Adam and Eve, safely in Eden. And it actually ends with God's people safely in Egypt. Genesis would have comforted the wandering Israelites as they were headed into the unknown promised name, uh, land. Because we see that between Genesis 3 and 49, God is actually dealing with a wicked, sinful people, right? Yet he still leads them to where he wants them to be, right? And I would actually submit to you all today that the main thing that actually runs throughout Genesis is that God is sovereign and that he actually cares for his creation. And when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about God's right to rule in all things, to both give and to actually take away. A little historical context, when we think about Genesis 11, we're actually introduced, excuse me, when we read Genesis 11, we're actually introduced to a man named Abram, right? And uh, in verses 29 through 13 of Genesis 11, we learn that he's actually married to Sarah, and the couple has been unable to actually have children. Chapter 12 documents God's call on Abram's life at the age of 75, right? God promises to actually give him kids. And one day, God would actually send the rescuer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through his family, right? All God asked was that Abram and Sarah would leave their, their first, their home uh, and their family and actually follow him. Now, that was actually a really tough choice to actually make to leave all their friends, all their resources, all their families and actually trust in God or to actually stay and be comfortable, right? And again, this wasn't an easy choice because Abram and Sarah were already old, right? Sarah had never been able to actually uh, have children, right? And so they had to actually believe that God would actually do something that would be impossible. God would actually have to create and display a miracle in their lives. We learned that Abram trusted God and it was credit to him as righteous, right? You fast forward that story 10 years later, and now we're, we're landed at chapter 16, right? And we see that God has yet to actually fulfill his promise. So Sarah, overwhelmed with doubt, takes matters into her own hands with the blessing and the, the permission of her husband, Abram, right? And so as we look at uh, the first four verses of the chapter, what we see is that this story actually centers around a young maidservant or what could be translated to an enslaved Egyptian girl named Hagar, right? She represents one of society's most marginalized people groups, right? The enslaved, those without rights, those without opinions, uh, those without the uh, power and authority to even exercise agency over their own lives, right? And again, in verses one through six, we see that in Hagar's situation, she's married to a man who doesn't love her and doesn't care for her. She's been used for the selfish purposes of others, namely Sarah and Abram, right? She's forced to be a surrogate mother, to give birth to a son who would be taken from her and raised by Sarah, right? And she's mistreated by Sarah, the one she belongs to, right? The one who's supposed to take care of her. So she does what makes sense, right? She flees from a bad situation, right? Only to find herself alone, right? Defenseless, unloved, pregnant and really without the resources to actually take care of herself or her unborn child, right? And to make matters worse, she doesn't know where she's going or how she'll actually get there. Can you relate? Perhaps not to, to Sarah's situation, but to the emotion she's experienced, right? Fear, loneliness, feeling unloved, feeling unseen by others, right? Maybe you find yourself in a loveless marriage, where your spouse has abandoned you, right? Either emotionally 
or, or physically. Maybe you've lost your job or, or your home due to COVID, right? Maybe as a child, your parents neglected or abused you, right? Maybe your employer at works consistently actually overlooks the hard work that you do. Maybe a friend has betrayed or, or has hurt you, right? Maybe you're actually grieving the loss of a loved one this morning, right? And perhaps you're wondering the same thing as Hagar when she found herself alone in that desert. Does anyone care about me? Does anyone know what I'm going through? Does anyone see me? Okay. Perhaps you've even asked God, as I once did as a teenager, if he cares for me, if he sees what I'm going through, as the world around me is actually crashing. Okay. Much like it was for Hagar, the answer to that question, to all those heart-rendering questions, is a yes. Yes, he does. God sees you and God cares for you. And so I believe that the central point that Moses wants to reveal to us in the next 25 minutes is that there's no circumstance in our life that escapes God's fatherly awareness and care. And in our most darkest moments, when we feel the most invisible, we see that God pursues us. We're going to see that in verse 7. The God knows us. We'll see that in verse 8. The God guides us. Verse 9 will show us that. And that God cares for us. We'll see that through verses 10 through 13. Okay. So as we see, we go back to verses 7 of Genesis chapter 16. We see that the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shore. Right. I think one of the, the, the really interesting things that really encourages me about verses 7 is that we see that God pursues us. Right. That God actually found Hagar. And in this chapter, we see that the angel of the Lord actually represents God and, and bears his credentials. And I love the fact that El Roy, the God who sees me, came to Hagar. He sought her out um, and arrived in a moment of her greatest need, right? And again, it's, we see that it's actually during our, our greatest time of need that El Roy, the God who sees me, pours out his grace and his mercy upon us. We can see that in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Right, which says that, you know, we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our circumstances, right? Who actually felt the same feelings that we actually felt, right? And so I'm always encouraged that when I actually see that, again, in our loneliness, in our desert, in our dry places, that it's actually God who actually pursues us, right? But you might be saying, right, it doesn't feel as if God's presence is, 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 is near, it doesn't feel as if God actually sees me, as, he was, as if he's pursuing me in this moment, right? I was remembered from a, uh, a friend reminded me uh, a few weeks ago that um, the theologian Charles um, Spurgeon reminds us that when we can't trace God's hand, trust God's heart, right? When we can't tell or see what God is actually doing in, in the busyness of our lives, right? Trust God's heart, right? And this actually requires us to actually to walk by faith and not by sight. And to walk by faith is to believe and to know that God is good and that God actually sees you. When we move to, to, to verse 8, we see that God actually knows us and he knows us intimately. Verse 8 reads, as, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. She answered. 
And again, if you revisit the first six chapters or the first six verses in this chapter, you see that every time Sarah and Abram mention Hagar in their conversation, she was referred to as my maidservant or your maidservant. Some translations said my slave or your slave. Right? This leads me to conclude that she had no value in their eyes other than someone to be used for their selfish purposes, right? to manipulate God's plan to provide a heir for Abram. Right? I can only imagine how demoralizing that must have been for Hagar. However, when God found Hagar at the well, the first words out of his mouth was Hagar. Right? When no one else cared enough to show Hagar any decency, we see that God did. And up until this point in the narrative, we're not even sure if Hagar knew who God was. But it's actually very apparent that God knew who she was. In fact, he knew her name. He showed her respect by using it. Right? And it's the same with us, that actually God knows our names, that we are his precious children. That God knows each and every sheep by name we see in John verses 10, uh, John chapter 10, verses 3. And not only does God know our names, but it's actually, we see in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 16, that it's actually, it's engraved into the palm of his hand. Right? And being engraved carries a deeper implication than being written. Being engraved means it's to be cut, to be carved into the palm of God's hand, implying permanence, which cannot be erased for those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. God not only knows us intimately, but he also knows when we're headed down the wrong path. Right? The angel of the Lord asks Hagar two questions, but she was only able to answer one not yet knowing exactly where she was going, right? She answers the first question only, right? And this is the part of the passage that kind of re reminds me of my, my, my daughter, right? Our youngest who, who walks around here sometime and says, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way, right? A, a line she picked up from Pets too. And it seemed to be very, um, not important, but it actually seems to fit the seems of what, what Hagar is actually experiencing right now, right? But God knew that, again, that role would actually ultimately fail her, right? The odds weren't in her favor. A woman walking alone, pregnant, without protection, right? Most likely without enough food and water to actually make it to the journey. See, the road, sure, is actually said to be the same road that the Israelites actually traveled when they were actually leaving Exodus and found themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It's very possible that Hagar was actually making her way back to Egypt, to her home. And when you actually look at the, the geographics behind it, right, the distance between Canaan and Egypt is 5,270 miles, right? So even if Hagar was actually in good shape, it has a really good pair of shoes, it would seem impossible for her to actually be able to, to, to walk that. Maybe in any given day, she can walk 25 miles in one day on fairly level ground, right? But actually to cover 5,000 270 miles would actually take her over 200 days of just walking. And so we see that in, in, in verses nine, that God actually guides us. He reveals his will to us during these times, right? Verses nine says, then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her, right? God tells her to go back, to submit to your mistress. Can you hear the objections in Hagar's mind? Can, can you hear the doubts 
in Hagar's mind. God didn't say that I've talked to Abram and Sarah. Go back. They're going to work it out. God didn't say that, you know what? Go, go back. Sarah will no longer mistreat you. God just says, go back and submit. Go back and submit. So I would think that in Hagar's mind, she's saying, but, but, but it's not fair. No, it may not be. Right? But I'll be mistreated. Yes, you might. Right? But you don't understand how difficult it will be. Well, it's, it's really not about understanding. It's about trusting in the providence of God, even when his providence is bitter, hard, or when it actually brings suffering. And when we mentioned the providence of God, we're talking about how God actually provides and cares for us. So we must recognize that, that God has purpose even in bad situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. Right? And again, we don't know what God's purposes are for telling Hagar to go back. But we do know that, again, God is sovereign. and He cares for his creation. And so Hagar is actually teaching us what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight. To walk by faith is to believe and, again, to know that God is good and that he actually sees us. When we see verses 10 through 12, we see that actually God cares for us. Right? And in this passage, the Lord tells Hagar that though indeed she's a slave, that her son Ishmael will not be. Ishmael means heard by God. That he will be free and will be both blessed and cursed in response to Abram and Sarah's betrayal. As I, as I prepared for this message and I, and I meditated on, on particularly on, on, on verses, verses nine, that God told her to go back to the situation, to go back to enslavement. I struggle with it. I wrestle with it. And then it's as if, as if God actually just revealed to me that, that you're thinking about this from a very privileged position because you've never been enslaved. Right? Put yourself in Hagar's position. That the angel of the Lord actually re reveals prophecies to her. That her son would be free and be the father of many nations. Right? I would like to think that up until this point in scripture, that God was actually giving her a vision into chapter 17. Where that same promise would be uh, reaffirmed to Abram. That God says that with Ishmael, I would make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He would be the father of 12 rulers of tribes. And I would make him into a great nation. I would like to think that, that the God was actually revealing to Hagar what's going to happen in chapter 21, that both Hagar and, and, and Ishmael would actually gain their freedom, although the circumstances would be harsh. I would like to think that, that the God was actually giving Hagar a glimpse into chapter 25, where we learn that Ishmael is indeed the father of 12 rulers, right? and he lived to be 137 years old. I'd like to think that, again, God was actually acting in that moment. That God was actually providing Hagar with a peace that surpasses all understanding. And because God sees her when no one else does, Hagar declares that you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Right. And this is really interesting because this is the first time that we see in the Bible that someone, that a human gives the name to God. Hagar names God. In the other encounters, in the other messages, it's God who actually reveals his name to his people. Right? And I'm encouraged because we see that someone who lives on the margins of society 
God actually makes them front and center of his story, of his narrative and his overall plan. And the same applies to us today. So we see that Hagar in verses 13, that she actually honors God and obeys him. If you read the, the rest of the passage, you see that she goes back and she, bur- she uh, uh, births her son. Right? So she's been mistreated and abused, but she recognizes that there's no circumstances in our lives that, again, escapes God's fatherly awareness and care. Hagar, knowing this, returns to Abram and Sarah, where she had her son. So, so what does this mean for us this morning? Well, we notice that there's really two main characters that stand out in the chapter, Sarah and, and Hagar, right? Both are faced with adversity, right? Both are in dark places. You have to remember that the Sarah has been unable to actually conceive a child. And, and, and back in the Old Testament days that those who were, who were said to be barren were, were looked at as a curse. So in her own way, she's actually in a dark place. For both of them, God actually reveals his promise and his will to them, right? However, one cannot see past her current circumstances and her personal limitations to believe God. The other trusts and believes God, believes that he actually sees her and that he actually cares. So again, what, what does this mean for us today? It means that we'll either trust that God sees us and cares, even though our per- present circumstances our health, our relationships, our finances, our emotional well-being look unchanging and hopeless, much like Hagar in her situation, or we will be like Sarah and take matters into our own hand, which only leads to sin and to more pain and suffering for, for ourselves and for others. It's hard as, I, as I've had the, the privilege of actually reflecting upon chapter 16, not to see how the interaction between the angel of the Lord and Hagar mirrors much like how Christ interacts and engages with us. Right? We see that God pursues us, that throughout scripture, God reveals himself as a seeker. We see that in John 4, verses 23. That God is actually pursuing us. He's actively, patiently, and passionately wooing our hearts. Right from the beginning of creation, God reveals himself as one who is actually seeking communion with human beings. Actually, when you think about the entire Bible in its entirety, that is really a story about God's pursuit of us. Right? We find Jesus telling us that he's come to seek. Right? For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. We see that in Luke chapter 19, verses 10. We know that God knows us. Right? He knows, as Romans 3, 23 says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God knows that we're all sinners. We all have disobeyed God. We all have dishonored God. We all have turned away from God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. However, God reveals his will to us. He directs us. He guides us. We see that in, in, in 2 Peter verses three, chapter 3, verses 7, that he says it's, it's his will that none of us should perish but all should come to repentance. And when we talk about repentance, we're talking about a turning away, right? To turn away from something, to turn towards God, a complete turning of the mind, of the heart, of the will. 
much like we see in the, 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 the story with Hagar, God actually ultimately reveals that he actually loves us, that he cares for us. Romans 5, 8 says this, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinner, that Christ died for us, satisfying the demands of the gospel and the demands of God against sinners. Moreover, he was raised on the third day. And Jesus' resurrection means that his sacrificial death on the cross was sufficient. And therefore, our sins can be forgiven. So now that everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ has Jesus' righteousness accredited to their account and has their sin nailed to the cross with Christ on Calvary so that they bear it no more. They were forgiven. They're cleansed. They're made new creatures through Christ. And so now they're joined together with Christ. And all the benefits of Christ become theirs through faith, including the promise of everlasting life and everlasting fellowship with God and their joy of basking in, in his love and his glory forever. And so the appeal that that God is making uh, through us at Victory Church, through me, to you, is that if you have not yet trusted in God, is that you would hear this message this morning and understand it, that you would trust yourself to Christ. You call upon his name, for the Bible says that everyone who calls upon his name shall be saved. And that is our hope. That is my hope for you. I pray that you would not leave this day without discovering more of what it actually means to trust in Jesus, to repent of your sins and to follow him in obedience of faith and so be saved. And so I I plead with you this morning to to turn to your Christian friend and ask more about what does this mean to follow Christ? I plead with you this morning to to go to our website at victoryseville.org and fill out our connect card so that we can actually connect with you and tell you more about this Jesus tell you more about what it means to, to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. Maybe today, as, as you're listening to this, you've already done that. You've already put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And yet you're still dealing with grief, with physical pain, loneliness, disappointment, discouragement, or even hopelessness. And maybe not even because of your sin or the sin of others, but because we live in a fallen world. And while we won't be able to escape pain and hardship, right, this side of heaven, there is a great encouragement in knowing that when we feel most invisible and forgotten by everyone else, that we can remember that God does see us. He witnesses our struggles and comes alongside us. So this morning, if you're stuck in a pattern of sin, Romans 8, 21 says that God sees your chains and he wants to free you from bondage. Are you unable to forgive yourself for the sins of your past? Psalms uh, chapter 103, verses 12 says that he sees your struggle and wants to comfort you with the knowledge that he has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Are you lonely? Are you feeling isolated? Proverbs 18, verses 24 says that God sees you, El Roy, and he's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Is your body broken, weak, or suffering from illness? 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 says that God sees your pain and he's waiting to comfort you in, in your affliction. Have you been hurt, exploited, or abused? Psalms 135, verses 14 says that he sees the sin that was committed against you and someday will vindicate you. Have you experienced loss and suffering, right? Grief that seems too deep to bear. Isaiah 53 verses four says that, that God sees you. El Roy sees your despair and understands it. And as the Lord Jesus bears our, our, get, our griefs, he also carries our, our sorrows. Are you growing weary and waiting for God to fulfill his promises to you? Philippians verses, chapter one, verses six says that he sees you in waiting, in your waiting, and will be faithful to complete his good work in you. Maybe today you're experiencing imaginable joy and peace in the season of life, despite the racial tensions, despite the health pandemic. God says that he sees you and is rejoicing over you with gladness. We see that in Zephaniah chapter three, verses 17. And so the central point today, the encouragement today, is, is that there's no circumstances in our life that actually, again, escapes God's fatherly awareness and cares. He sees you. El Roy sees you. So I'm going to close in prayer. Oh, El Roy, that, that you are the God who sees us. You see us in the valleys. You see us on the mountaintops. We thank you that you watch over us because you love us, that you're motivated in love for us. A great mystery indeed. We pray that you will continue to see us in our circumstances, to see us in our situations. And much like Hagar, that you would actually encourage us, embolden us to trust in you, to follow you, to put our faith and our trust in you. We're thankful that you see us in, in, in this moment of, of, of crisis political confusion, racial tension inside and outside of the church, that you see us, that you see your people, and that your word says that you have not forsaken us. We thank you for that, the fact that you are God, and that enough is alone for us actually to sing you praise. We thank you for the opportunity, the privilege to come to you in prayer. We, we pray that you continue to see us, that you continue to seek us, that you continue to pursue us, that you continue to make yourself available to us while you might be found. Please use this message, use the messages from the past month to plant seeds, to create new Christians and to sustain existing Christians. May we honor you with our words and with our deeds and with our actions as we move forward into the season of unknown, and may you continue to see us through your word, through your people, and through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed, Victory Church.